0: Welcome to Cybersecurity Inside and this episode of What That Means. We are going to talk about intelligence systems today, and that's all in the context of artificial intelligence and augmenting human experience. I have with me today Lema Nachman, who is a fellow at Intel, and she's in charge of the relatively newly created intelligent systems research lab within Intel Labs. It's actually a combination of several other labs that have existed for a long time, so she's been doing research in this field for quite a while. But we're going to ask her about what her lab does and what intelligent systems mean. This is actually part 1. We have a part 2 where we speak with three of the people who work and run research projects within her lab and get into a little bit more
1: detail about their topics. Welcome Lama Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. So, the Intelligent Systems Research Lab. So basically, we are a multidisciplinary lab that brings together social science, design, and AI, and hardware and software engineering. And what we're really trying to do is figure out how do you augment and amplify human capabilities and experiences with AI. So we use a social science based approach to go and understand what are all of these unmet needs in the world and then go and understand what type of innovation that needs to happen on the AI side to actually bring major improvement in these life experiences for people. So that's at kind of like the experience level and a lot of the human AI collaboration pieces of that puzzle. We also do a lot of innovation at the lower level um, on the algorithmic side to really try to, in some sense, solve some of these hard problems that are essentially today standing in the way of scaling AI in real-world applications. And, you know, those range from how do you improve accuracy, how does it learn in new environments that it hadn't seen before, how do you actually do inference at, like, extremely large scale, um, learn from very limited data... And, you know, then also try to get to things like explainability and usability of these systems.
0: So, Lemma, can you tell us also what research you personally have been focused on over the last, uh, you know, couple of decades, I guess,
1: really? So I've actually, it's interesting. So I came to Intel in 2003, so about 18 years ago, I guess now. And my work actually started in wireless sensor networks and trying to essentially connect the physical world and the digital world. So a lot of sensing and understanding from all of these different sensed uh, data to try to actually um, change the way that we do work in, in different things. We moved towards trying to sense people and applied a lot of that towards health applications. So things like pre-diabetes monitoring, as an example. And then we moved on to really try to scale to um, just understanding context in general. And that started with a lot of on-body sensing. So we've done a lot of work where, you know, wearables and things like that. And then we expanded towards just understanding essentially everything that's happening in the environment around you. So the whole notion is that if technology is able to really understand people and what they're trying to do in the world, not necessarily just from interacting with the PC or interacting with the phone, but actually what you're trying to accomplish in your everyday-to-day life, right? In terms of learning in a physical environment or working in a fab or you know, just helping people with disabilities, as an example, what can we utilize as signals in the physical world? And then with a lot of algorithmic innovation, turn that into understanding so that we can better facilitate experiences for people as they traverse their normal life. Is this getting smaller and smaller, like from
0: on-body to in-body? Are we seeing a trajectory in that direction? So we see
1: smaller and smaller, and we see bigger and bigger. So yeah. actually we see traversal in both of these spaces, For sure, I mean, you know definitely sensing has gotten smaller. Computation has gotten much more efficient so that we're able to actually materialize systems in tiny, tiny, you know, implementations. But also if you think about it, really is just, it is spreading into the environment in ways that we have not seen before, which is actually, if you think about it in terms of data, it's translating to just an unbelievable amount of data. But you're looking at, augmenting the, I guess, human experience.
0: So we're focused on humans here and using technology and using sensors to understand better what the human is experiencing and then improve that experience. Is that kind of the high level?
1: Yeah. And I would say just kind of maybe a subtle point of distinction is that when we talk about this, because there's a lot of work that you can think about in terms of just how do you improve the experience with technology as in you know, I'm using my PC and I can make that experience better. And in some cases we do that, right? Because the PC ends up being, for example, maybe the conduit of communication, like right now, right? You and I are communicating. One of the things that we know people struggled with throughout the pandemic is, you know, what we call the Zoom fatigue, right? Or any telepresence fatigue. And that's because there aren't really, I mean, trying to bring that back to 2D, communication is, is not something that actually makes sense and people use all of these subtle cues and actually better representation of the physical world is much better to enable that type of communication. So in that specific case, maybe you can think about it as it's enhancing that experience, right? That's facilitated by the technology. But if you think more broadly, when you step into a manufacturing setting and you have a technician who's actually working on some equipment in the fab, Right. And they're trying to fix something or, you know, transition from one task to another to print a totally different processor or something like that. They do a lot of these tasks in the physical environment. And a lot of the work that we do is really bringing technology to understand what people are doing in the physical environment and then assist them. Right. So if you understood what somebody's doing and if you understood what is supposed to happen and you can actually converse like the AI system can converse well with the human, then you could see how you can start to think of these things as human AI systems where we're bringing the best of the human and the best of the AI system without getting stuck at what's not good about either one of those, right? So we're trying to really leverage the diversity in human AI systems to say people are good at some things that that AI is terrible at and vice versa. Rather than get into this, oh, well, you know, we're trying to replicate humans, How do you get into this place where you can actually make AI systems much more resilient, make them shine in the things that they really do well, which is processing massive data and finding patterns in massive data, but humans are not really good at that. But they're very good at learning from limited data in totally ambiguous situations that they have never seen before. And AI systems struggle with that all day long. And both of these things are usually needed to solve any problem in the real world. So that's what we're really trying to do. So give
0: us an example of something, and it can be far-fetched and it can be, uh, you know, hypothetical and maybe not, we don't even know if it's going to happen, but what sort of thing might you imagine this could enable in the future? What kind of
1: a use case or scenario? Let me maybe give you a couple of examples that we've been working on. So one is in manufacturing settings, right? So, I mean, it's, it's amazing because we've done t- tons of automation in general, in man- especially in chip manufacturing. But you walk into a FAB and you still see tons of people. It's not like people disappear. They just do different tasks in the FAB, right? So these type of tasks have very specific set of um, like specs associated with them, right? So you could imagine having an AI system that can ingest all of these specs through natural language processing and understand that these are, okay, the different tasks that someone should be doing to actually perform this specific procedure. Now, you could train, and this is what we're working on, is training essentially an AI system to recognize the specific tasks and subtasks to actually aid people in figuring out what information they need in the moment, what specific next task, or sometimes people forget things, right? And those are things that if the AI system can take all of this natural language processing and bring in the looking through the camera to understand physical tasks that people can do and make that link, it can then massively bring a lot of information including information that it has seen across multiple users. So to enable human-to-human learning. Because what you see in these settings is that you have people who have done this and they're experts, and you have novice people, and they don't know these things. And sometimes experts skip things for a reason. So having that ability to dialogue with the person and highlight these things and have actually the person help the AI system in its learning Right, it's like okay, no, it it made a mistake in recognizing this thing, and the person can say no, actually, this is X, right? And then the AI system continues to learn. So now you're bringing in some of the knowledge of the human, especially the experts, and helping train the AI system in what should happen. Another example that we've been working on quite a bit is actually in early childhood learning, and there we've done a lot of ethnographic research that pointed to parents being having this dilemma right? On one hand, they really want to bring the best that technology can bring to their child's education, because they see the benefit of that. But they're extremely worried about screen time, and rightfully so, because we've seen a lot of, you know, the research on how that is actually translating to a lot of issues in in the longer term. So then, if you actually step back and think about it, how does learning happen in early childhood learning? If you walk into a kindergarten class, you don't see people actually on laptops and and, and tablets, right? You see them on the floor, on the rug, playing with manipulatives, learning math by putting objects together. All these types of things happen in an actual classroom environment. So one of the questions that we were asking is, how can you get an AI system to actually observe what's happening in the room and be kind of a peer learner? If it can help a student, for example, in math learning... So maybe they're putting blocks and rods together. They're mapping to tens and ones and additions and subtraction and comparisons and things like that. But they're doing that in the physical world. So that means the technology needs to come into the physical world, observe them, and then have a conversation with them that is actually situated in that physical world, because that's what it needs to be able to do.
0: Where is this... Compute or this AI gonna sit? It's interpreting natural language. It's maybe interpreting video or gesture or different cues that humans give. Like, where is it? Are we talking the great eye in the sky now, uh, wherever we are?
1: If you turn the whole environment into a very smart environment, now what you the other part that I haven't talked about is ultimately what you're really trying to do is bring engagement, right? Because what we know from pedagogy research that learning outcomes correlate with engagement of students, right? So to try to get this to be an engaging environment, we've actually gone all the way out, right? So this thing actually projects the spear learner. um, He's aware of the physical space. He's a teddy bear-like thing that jumps all over things that kids can help him build structures for him so that he can traverse it. And because of the fact that we're able to map the environment, we will understand there's a box that somebody put in that some, that Oscar can jump on and land on and still obey the laws of physics, but it becomes kind of this digital physical world connection that makes it much more engaging. Is this actually a robot? I I don't know that I understand. No, no, no. It's actually projected. It's actually projected in a projection space, but we're able to actually map out the physical environment. So now imagine you have this thing on the wall that's actually moving, and then there is like a box that the kids have put up, right? And then he can jump and land on that box. So you're actually almost like bringing him out of the wall of the projection onto that physical. So it becomes much more engaging. And we've done actually deployments in the school where, you know, we could actually see a very different level of engagement because of the fact that now they're engaging with Oscar as if it's actually a physical thing in that world, even though it's not actually embodied, Uh right, In, in like a robot. But to answer your question about then where does it live? So in that case, just imagine, right, you have a huge wall with projected everything. You have LiDARs, you have five cameras in the environment, things like that. This is really turning a space into a smart space. So now you have a server running in the school that's actually doing that. You know That is great if you're actually trying to understand what is the unlimited version of that. But one of the things that we've done, especially when COVID hit, because this project actually started pre-COVID, and then COVID hit right in the middle of this project. So we had Managed to get one deployment in a school in Hillsboro before that happened, and that gave us a lot of insight. But then we started, we turned around and we said, what is a minimal viable thing of that experience that you can actually deploy in people's homes? Because, you know, that would be something that we'd always need as well, right? So then what we turned towards is trying to bring that Oscar character and have, you know, not a huge physical environment, but think about a rug on the floor with a laptop that facilitates that sensing and and computation and all of that stuff. So you're essentially still creating a smart environment because the kids are sitting on the rug and playing with these manipulatives, but it's actually enabled by essentially a laptop and a couple of peripherals. And that all, you know, clearly one of the things that are very important for us are things like privacy and so on. So we make sure that all of that processing is actually happening at the front end and, and so on and so forth.
0: So this is kind of like taking the digital world and enhancing, using it to enhance the real world. And I can't help but be thinking about right now all the conversation around metaverse, which is basically moving people into the digital world, or the concept is that. And how would this kind of technology play out or become a catalyst for
1: something like that? If you talk about metaverse and it's funny because I've talked to multiple people, you know, multiple friends that I have at Facebook and other places and whatever. And, you know, everyone has their own interpretation, by the way, about metaverse. So sometimes we talk about it as if it's an own thing. But Well, it, maybe you should actually define it quickly. How It's what you... really about everything becoming ubiquitous, right? So then you're actually connecting the physical world and the digital world in some interesting ways. You actually interpret things differently. You have all sorts of different devices that have to live within that right that you know makes these type of experiences possible but i want to just kind of step back for a second and and say ultimately there are all sorts of experiences within that spectrum all from total virtual reality where everything is virtual to everything analog and everything in between within that spectrum right so to me what's really interesting about this is what is the problem that you're trying to solve and what are the concerns that you have that you're trying to mitigate. So when it comes to early childhood learning, what we've heard time and time again from parents is that they really want this to be as analog as possible with intelligence, just enabling or bridging the gap of where the analog equivalent is not possible. Right? So if you were to have a teacher for every child in the world, That would be fascinating, but that's not reality. So then the question is, how do you not then turn that into the other extreme, which is now everything is virtual? Like if everything is virtual, it simplifies how you consume content, how you deal with it. But if you start to say, well, no, I still want the physicality of the physical environment, but I want actually the intelligence to comprehend that, it's a much harder problem, right? Because if, if I put you in the computer, it's much easier for me to actually do right. everything and observe everything that you do. And I think that is really the struggle because in some things, totally virtual is absolutely fantastic, right? Especially if you're enabling things like, I want to do remote health work, right? That's fantastic, right? It works out really nicely and it does everything that you need. But you, we have to understand that there are very different experiences at that within that spectrum that needs to be enabled and technology needs to come in as a way to A, understand where it plays and where it doesn't. And you
0: work with contextually aware and multimodal. And can you just talk about what are the different kinds of things via wearable or via video or via whatever sensors you're using to actually get a sense of the environment?
1: We essentially utilize visual input. So camera, you know, whether images or video that you're talking about. And these things are very different, right? Because sometimes what you're trying to do is get to fine action recognition, right? And you really need a lot of the details. And sometimes you're trying to understand activity, like a kid is actually jumping up and down and doing these type of things. And you can do that from like a distance and more course Um, and skeleton type interactions. We do a lot of work with audio. And with audio, I mean, both understanding background audio, and what's happening you know, in, in the background. So like the, the scene of the environment, if you will, the audio scene, and that provides a lot of context. So what you're hearing in the background and then what you're hearing in the foreground, which is actually the speech, right? We do a lot of work with text. We do a lot of work with physiology. Um, so you know, a lot of the um, things that have to do with emotion and engagement and things like that actually have a physiological component to it. So if you're able to detect things like heart rate, and skin conductance, that gives you a lot of input. We also do a lot of work on BCI. So we get EEG signals as well, especially for people with needs uh, for accessibility. So if you can't- What is DCI? Them, BCI is Brain Computer Interface. So essentially oh. we, you essentially wear a headset, right? That has electrodes. And then what we could do is capture essentially EEG or, you know, brain waves to enable people to communicate with the PC because they can't move any other muscle. So this is, imagine someone who's totally locked in, like someone with ALS that can't move any other muscle. We've also used all sorts of other signals to capture muscle movement for people with, with disability. But you know, if we're talking about more of the mainstream sensing, we also have been doing a lot of interesting work in using Wi-Fi as a sensor. And that mm-hmm. might not be obvious, right? Because we think of Wi-Fi as a method for communication, But if you think about it specifically when you get to the issue of privacy, we actually, when we move around in the physical environment, we disrupt Wi Fi signals, right? And wireless Mm -hmm. signals generally. So we've been trying to utilize that disruption instead of being a noise on communication, being the signal in human activity, right? So Mm -hmm. we try to essentially take that data and turn it with machine learning algorithms to understand people's activities, what they're actually doing in the physical environment. The cool thing about this is that from some of the ethnographic research that we've done with elderly people in their homes, they have a major concern about having a camera watching them, even though they're willing to have a system that can understand that they're doing fine and they're progressing usually with their day to day activities because then they can stay longer in their homes They're fine with that inference, but they just don't want a camera because they're worried about somebody seeing them in those settings and whatever. So then we, what we try to ask the question is, well, if you actually, to solve some of the privacy issues, one of the things that you could do is reduce the gap between what is being sensed and what's being inferred. So with wireless sensing, you're actually pretty much sensing what you can infer, right? You don't have all of this high resolution images and things like that to then infer that somebody just went to the kitchen to do something. So that that's, you know, another interesting signal that we actually um, use.
0: How, uh, I guess without getting into too much detail, like how m- much can you tell about a person from their interference with a Wi-Fi signal? Are we talking about just where they're located or are, are there other kinds of reaction?
1: So essentially, I mean, it's it's a lot of things and a whole roadmap and a lot of complexity over time that gets uncovered as, you know, wireless signals get better, as you can tap into more things from the platform as computation getting better and things like that. I mean, we can detect a lot of things if it's the same environment and you can take out, you know, some of the changes in the environment out of this picture. But to a large extent, one obvious thing that you're detecting is motion, Mm -hmm. right? So when you detect motion, now, if you can detect motion, you can start to look at what type of motion maps to what activity. You know, one simple thing that you can detect is if somebody's actually walking towards their PC to turn it on. And then you can start turning things on in the background to make it actually much less, you know, more timely, right? To get to it once you get to it. But you know, you can understand that somebody is actually walking around in the kitchen. You can over time start to understand this looks like somebody's actually preparing dinner or something like that. Another area that we've been focused on is actually getting physiological signals. So you can detect breathing from wireless signals because essentially what's happening is that your chest is moving. On one hand, you could argue that movement is much smaller, so it's harder to detect. On the other hand, it's much more uh, periodic. So in some sense, there is something easier about detecting something Mm -hmm. like that, right? So we, today, I mean, we have some POCs that are showing detecting actually breathing just from wireless signals,
0: So let me just go back to one other thing you said that I found really interesting. You were talking about maybe patients with ALS or people who can't move at all, even to signal yes or no. Yeah. And I know a long time ago, it was kind of like we could tell people to play ten- picture playing tennis or picture walking around their room. And one meant yes and one meant no. And therefore, we could communicate with people that we had considered vegetables. And it's come a long way. So can you tell us how
1: far it's come? <laughs> Yeah, so I would say maybe I would, I would separate that into a couple of areas, right? The thing I was really referring to is active communication, okay. right? Not necessarily understanding thought, but actually understand, like if you have the intention of doing something, mm-hmm. and really the way it works is just imagine, let's say you have a lot of different options on, on the screen or maybe a keyboard, right? And you flash different things on the keyboard. If you're intending to type a specific letter, when that letter flashes, we know that there is a different signal that comes out in the EEG signal that we can tap into. It's very noisy, it's not very clear, especially that it's not this is not embedded in your brain. This is just a cap that we are wearing, right? Mm-hmm. So that makes the signal much less um, the fidelity of the signal much less. So then if you do that, then basically what you're able to do is with multiple repetitions to reduce the the error, and we're bringing language models into the picture. Right, then you can start to guess. Oh, this person meant to type this letter. Right, that is what we call BCI, which is brain computer interface. Right, because you're trying to interface through that uh, brain computer uh, system. Um, The second thing that you mentioned, which is you know, there's a lot of work that has been done, and in fact, actually, Ted Wilkie in Intel Labs, he's done actually a lot of work in collaboration with, with universities to try through things like fMRI and and looking at images to try to understand, can we actually, in some sense, classify thought, if you will, right, through these methods, right? And that really requires, you know, you're imaging the your brain, you're looking at, you know, data from a lot of people and then trying to understand, okay, are there specific patterns that you see? I I frankly don't know a lot about this, this area. I haven't done a lot of work in it. In some sense, what you're doing there isn't, isn't a controlled thing, right? Because when you're trying to interact, I give you a keyboard and I'm going to flash things in a way that I can make my detection easier because ultimately the goal is actually communication, right? As opposed to just kind of more generally trying to understand thought that's actually more implicit. And- Free flowing or,
0: or um, unstructured yeah. data. But if you couple that with the physiological reactions, it seems you could get a lot closer. Interesting. So, and the final question for you is, obviously, we've kind of uh, come close to talking about a lot of things that would, I imagine, bring up privacy concerns for people, ethics concerns. So, can you just uh, let us know kind of what your lab is thinking about with respect to this or how you can take in, you know, those considerations?
1: Totally. So, you know, one of the really good things about looking at this from a multidisciplinary perspective is that much earlier in the cycle. And it's actually something that we've been doing across all of Intel, right? Which is how do you enable responsible development of AI? And that means at the very, very early stages, you're asking questions about risk and you're looking at the project as a whole, even before you start developing. Because if you think about ethical concerns, right? Ethical concerns happen at different stages. There are ethical concerns with what a system does and whether it should do this in the first place. Um, which is really kind of what we try to flesh out early on, right? And then there are ethical concerns about is the thing that I developed in the way that I've developed it starting to bring ethical concerns. So the example that I talked about with wireless, for example, versus camera is one about the development, right? The, I mean, we take this approach in pretty much everything, everything that we do, right? So we're looking at the risk for the specific problem and say, what's the least amount of data that should be captured? How do we infer As close to the sensing as possible so that data is reduced and you're not sending raw data back, you know, which actually then makes the privacy concern more, right? With the whole human AI collaboration piece, right? We're trying to understand how do you actually bring the human capability into this picture rather than assume that the only way that you can actually bring AI and innovation is to replace humans, right? How do you bring better outcomes when you think about the key role that humans play into the puzzle? we look a lot at equity, right? And a lot of the work that we do with accessibility is really rooted at how do we bring equitable outcomes despite you know the range of abilities and capabilities that people have. So there's, that's a big part of what we do. And then, of course, looking at bias in a lot of the algorithms that we build and ensuring that we're not just <laughs> replaying the bias that's in the data in the world back at us through the AI systems that we build. So those are some examples. It's really just something that permutates through everything that we do within within the lab.
0: Super fascinating. Lama Nachman, Intel Fellow running the Intelligent Systems Research Lab within Intel Labs. Fabulous conversation. And in a part two, we're going to talk with several members of your team and dive a little deeper into the specific kinds of research that they're looking at within your lab. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside.